Today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be more like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From the years 1508 to 1516, Michelangelo lay on his back and painted one of the most beautiful portraits and one of the most widely known portraits uh, that we all know of. It's the Sistine Chapel. But sadly, about a century after he painted this, uh, this beautiful rendition of the fall and the flood, people began to forget what the original colors of this fresco looked like. Not long after he ended this painting, grime and smudge uh, distorted this beautiful picture, so much so that no one remembered the original colors. One painter described it this way, said, we see the colors of the 16th ceiling as if through smoked glass. Well, in 1981, uh, some, some art restorers came and uh, they took this solution and they, they cleared over uh, just one section of the painting and they were absolutely astonished to see the colors that existed beneath all this grime. Michelangelo, who was once known to paint a one re resembling sculpture and very human-like features, that Michelangelo was very different from the one once they started restoring this painting. This was an artist who uh, had nuance of color, who had bright and vibrant detail all in his paintings. So what they ended up doing was paying uh, for this entire work to be restored, and it took twice as long to restore the picture to its original color and its original look than it did to uh, create it to start with. What's interesting is that for the first time in nearly 500 years, 
people were able to view this masterpiece the way it was intended in all of its color and beauty. The same can be said about the human condition found in our text this morning. God's original masterpiece, man and woman, were perfect. They were beautiful. They were radiant. They were reflecting God's artistic perfection. But in our text, we see sin. And we see sin smearing the canvas of God's creativity. And just like the Sistine Chapel, it's going to take way longer to restore it than it was able to create it. So the question before us this morning is, how did sin affect humanity's relationship with God? How does sin affect humanity's relationship with God? You'll notice if you have your order of worship in your outline, we're gonna answer this question in three ways. The way to God is broken, the truth of God's word is distorted, and then the life that we have with God needs restoration. So we see our first point in verse eight. Look with me there. We see the way to God is broken. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You can almost see this scene unfolding as you read it. Adam and Eve are playing the very first recorded game of hide and go seek. But this game is not one of joy and happiness. This is a game of tragedy. They hear God coming towards them in this beautiful garden of Eden, and it's plentiful. And they're living in paradise. They have all these trees and this fruit to enjoy. But because of sin, the blessings themselves are being used as barriers to hide from God like a movie that starts at, the, uh, at the end, starts at the beginning with the end, we see the result. We have to be thinking, what in the world brought us to this point? What in the world brought us to this cosmic hide and seek here? Well, if you see at the end of Genesis chapter two, this couple, Adam and Eve, were naked and they were unashamed before God. And then now in our text, they've gone from enjoying this splendor and majesty to naked and covered and ashamed with sown fig leaves covering their nakedness, hiding from themselves and hiding from God. Tragically, the way to God has been broken. Adam and Eve, they were tempted to disobey God and their disobedience drove a wedge not only between their marriage but drove a wedge between their relationship with themselves and God. And it highlights the ridiculousness that's taking place here. I mean, how ridiculous do Adam and Eve get because of their sin? Because they're experiencing the shame and guilt, and even in verse 10, we see fear of God for disobeying him. They try to take matters into their own hands, and we get really weird when we try to do things our own way to make themselves presentable to God, they covered themselves with handmade clothes. Knowing 
That wasn't good enough to make themselves presentable. Then they just hide behind the trees, foolishly thinking that God doesn't somehow know right where they are and what they've done. Sadly, to this day, we often try to make ourselves presentable to God, and we try to take things into our own hands when we sin. God, yes, I know I lied to my boss today. Yeah, I feel terrible about that one. I did not want to work that overtime shift. Or yeah, yeah, God, I, I gossiped about my friend's affair, and it was super funny, but now I feel terrible, and everybody knows about it. Yeah, God, I drank a little too much and got in that bar fight at Applebee's. Yes, um, I know I messed up, all right? I feel terrible, God. So here's, here's what I'm gonna do. Talk about loving God, loving your neighbor. How can I, right, I'm gonna read my Bible. I'm gonna read my Bible a little bit extra this morning, especially without falling asleep. I'm totally gonna do that this morning. And it's trash day tomorrow, so I'm gonna roll my neighbor's trash cans out to the road. That'll be good enough. Loving God, loving my neighbor. Now, reading your Bible without falling asleep and rolling your neighbor's trash to the road, those are awesome things, right? But these actions, when we try to use them to assuage God or to cover our sins or to try to hide our sins before God, it's just as silly as Adam and Eve trying to patch themselves up and to patch their sins up out of fig leaves. We're learning right in the beginning that we cannot pay for our sins by even a, the best work that we can muster up. You see, our text is teaching us this morning that sin has completely destroyed the way to God. We either try to patch ourselves up to be near him or we hide from God out of fear and our shame can turn to anger. It's like, I'm just done with God at this point. Perfect communion with God has been wrecked, and there's nothing we can do to restore this relationship on our end. So if you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're, you're engaging with the text, a very normal question is to ask, why is God so serious about fruit? Why all the big fuss over fruit? Let's answer that question with our second point. We've seen how sins destroyed our way to God. Let's see how the truth of God is distorted. Look with me in verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we've had our first game of hide and go seek. Now we've got our first Bible study taking place. And notice who's in this Bible study. It's Satan and Eve. And they're talking about God, not to God. Like God is some distant third wheel and Adam's just there in the conversation, not doing a single thing about it. But notice what Satan isn't doing. He isn't coming to this conversation, to this Bible study, like this hardened opponent of God 
Calling God dumb, don't listen to God. Oh, you're stupid. No, 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 he's not doing that. He's engaging very winsomely in conversation with Eve. And what he's doing is he's casting subtle doubts about the very nature and the very care of God for his creation. You can feel the the tension rising here. Whose voice would Adam and Eve listen to? Would they listen to God's voice and God's word, or would they listen to Satan? You know, what's taking place here is very similar to how toddlers get in trouble. All right, so imagine you've got like a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and the six-year-old knows exactly where the cookies are on the, on the countertop. You know you can't have cookies without permission. You know your parents aren't gonna let you have them. So what does the six-year-old do? He employs the three-year-old. Say, like, hey, let me tell you where some really good cookies are that we can go eat. And then the six-year-old takes the unassuming little three-year-old And he goes and the older one pulls out all the drawers for him. The three-year-old climbs up. He distributes the forbidden treats. And then they just sit there and enjoy them. That's what's taking place here. Adam and Eve are both in big trouble. Although the younger sibling grabs the cookies, although Eve is the one grabbing the fruit, the older one is much more responsible. Adam is much more responsible here. Now notice, too, the subtlety of Satan, the subtlety of Satan. Think about this. Satan takes the focus off of God's clear commandment, takes the focus away. He takes the focus away from all of God's abundant blessing, and then he drills down on one prohibition. He takes this one prohibition and then he expands it and he creates an entire worldview for Adam and Eve, one where God is stingy and restrictive and weak and insecure. Satan is coming along and saying, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows that you're gonna be just like him. Total lie. And God doesn't want you to be like him at all. God is insecure, and he's got to keep your joy in check. That's why he's scaring you with this whole death thing. You're not really going to die. Don't worry about it. Just take and eat. Take and eat. Indulge. Take and eat. And when you eat, you're going to experience true freedom and true life. So can you see that this is a much bigger issue than fruit, it's much bigger. The bite of the fruit was just the culminating action of a heart motivated by sin. Adam and Eve chose to suppress and distort the truth of God in their lives. And we know in Deuteronomy 32 that God's word, it says, is our very life. God's word is our very life. In Eden, in this garden, Adam and Eve were saying, not your will, God, but my will be done. They chose to close their eyes to the abundant goodness of God. They chose to close their eyes about how God was with them and caring for them every moment, 
and they chose to listen and obey Satan over God. They gave into their temptations and they believed that life would be better on their own. But what did they receive? They didn't receive life. They didn't receive greater knowledge or uh, equality with God, but they received death. And not just physical death, but spiritual and emotional death. Sin was this process that culminated in this sinful action. And life as we know it has never been the same. We see that working out in our lives even today. We all have areas in our lives where we choose to suppress the truth of God and, uh, and we refuse to let his word minister to our own heart and lives. There's a thousand different ways that this is applies, but let's take forgiveness. Let's take forgiveness. You have those moments where you're with somebody where it's really, really hard to forgive them. Maybe years of tension is there. And you're hearing, yes, Matthew 6, I know Jesus is teaching and he's saying, I must forgive. And you hear that echo of Matthew 6, Jesus in your own life. And you're like, yeah, but they've hurt me too bad. I just can't forgive them. I can't stand them. I don't wanna look at them. But I'll do the right thing. I'll play nice in front of them. I'll act like nothing's wrong. But you know, deep down in your heart at dinner, like, I hope they choke on those mashed potatoes. You see, when we treat God's word as one word amongst many that we can choose to follow, we're engaging in the same sin as our first parents. When we, like Adam and Eve, choose to follow any word Beside God's word, we're allowing that same lie to rule our hearts. Did God actually say? Because we have so, so many competing voices vying for our heart's worship, so many words trying to rule our hearts, we oftentimes live longing for restoration. And this is where our final point comes to. So we've seen the way so we've seen how the way to God is broken. We've seen how the truth of God has been distorted. And our last point is now we see how life itself needs to be restored. In verses 11 through 13, we have this conversation taking place. It's between God and Adam and Eve. And then in verse 11, God comes alongside of them. He asked him, he was like, who, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. And how does Adam respond? In verse 12, Adam blames God. He blames Eve. He blames shifts. And he lies. And how does Eve respond? She follows perfect suit. She blames Satan. They don't take any responsibility for their actions. What's unfolding here? What's unfolding is the conflict that will exist forever between ourselves and how we relate to each other and how we all relate to God. We all live and interact in a world where we are hurt 
and where we hurt other people. We blame shift. We defend our sins. We try to hide our guilt. And oftentimes we can even blame God for the sins that we commit. And as you think about the power and the majesty of God, how in the world would you expect God to respond to those kinds of sins? I know if I were God, I'd be so frustrated. I'd be like, we're gonna need to hit a reset button on y'all. We're gonna wipe y'all out and I'm gonna start this whole thing over. Ain't nobody ever gonna find out about Adam and Eve. I'm gonna start over. But that's not what God does here. You'll notice in your text, after the fruit was eaten and Adam and Eve were hiding in fear away from each other and away from God, what happens in verse eight? God draws near to sinners. God draws near to them. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't destroy them, all of which he had the right to do. He comes and graciously ask questions. He comes and graciously confronts them out of love, and he already knew the answer. So what are we learning about God? God is from the very beginning showing us that he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love for his children. He gently moves towards these sinners, and he invites confession and honesty. And we have to ask, how do you think the relationships in our life would look if we moved towards people who hurt us with compassion and gentility? What if that was our first move towards people who've hurt us? I suggest that our relationships would look a lot differently. But not only does God move towards sinners, but look in verse 15. He gives uh, what many have called and what I believe is the first pronouncement of the gospel. In verse 15, we learn that one day an offspring would come of Eve and would come and bruise Satan's head. And what, that's, what that means is that there would be a fatal blow, that there would be a, a fatal mortal wound that happens to Satan. And if this is the only text you have, you'd be wondering who in the world would that offspring eventually be? In Luke's gospel, at the end of chapter three, we have this wonderful genealogy that a lot of times just gets skipped over. I know it happens. But at the end of this genealogy, we see that Jesus was the descendant all the way from Adam and Eve. Jesus is that very descendant who would one day come and destroy Satan and sin once and for all. You see, the same God who moved towards sinners in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden is the same God who draws near to sinners in Jesus Christ. One of the many things we learn from the garden is that sin is a process. Sin didn't just start at the bite of the fruit. Sin was this slow and agonizing process 
But thank God we have Jesus in another garden paying for sin by another slow and agonizing process. So just like sin happening well before the bite of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, the payment for sin happened well before the cross and it started in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, we encounter the offspring of Adam and Eve. We encounter Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane under great stress, under great pain and agony and sorrow. And Jesus here was experiencing the pain of the curse brought into this world by Adam and Eve, so much so that he's sweating blood. And that's a medical term called hematridosis. That's a, a, a recognized medical condition. Jesus was agonizing and bleeding through his sweat glands, not just over nails and physical death, but on the cross, he would experience the full wrath of God for all the sins of humanity and for this very sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. For family devotions, Martin Luther was once reading the account of Abraham and Isaac on the altar from Genesis 22 to his wife. And as he was reading it, his wife Katie said, you know what, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that God would have treated his son like that. He replied, but Katie, he did. You see, our awe at Advent isn't just that Jesus came at all, but it's that Jesus came to be crucified for sinners. And during this Advent season, what we can do is look back at the Garden of Eden and see that the way and the truth and the life between God and man was absolutely destroyed, but God himself came down again in Jesus who said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and he redeemed us from this curse by becoming a curse for us. And the good news is that he's coming again one day. You see, Jesus died and rose again victoriously over sin and death, and he's constantly restoring God's masterpiece to its original beauty that's been marred by sin. And this leaves all of us in here needing to answer one very important, eternally important question. What spiritual garden are you living in today? There's only two. Are you living in the garden like Eden where you're following your own sin, you're following your own way, telling God, not your will be done, but mine, God, hoping to either pacify God with your good works or you might just be hiding from God altogether. And we can hide from God even in these chairs this morning. Or are you living in the spiritual garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will be done, but yours? Are you living by faith and trusting in God 
that same God who draws near to sinners and invites them into relationship, who exchanges his righteousness for your sin. You see, without Jesus, take and eat are only verbs of condemnation, just like they were in Eden. But in Jesus, take and eat, transform into verbs of salvation, where he invites you to come to him, and he says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. The only way you can enjoy that feast of forgiveness is by faith and faith alone in him. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing grace that you would save sinners at all. Lord, that you draw near to us in Jesus, that you are patient with us in our sins, that you move towards us in gentility and care. You take us as we are. You know the depths and the core of our sinful hearts, Lord, and you welcome that. And Jesus, you willingly went to the cross and bore all of that sin, guilt, and shame, and you exchanged for us your righteousness. You give us new life. You give us freedom. You help us to see life as you intended it to be. Father, I pray that you would help us to look back and see the beauty of the cross, and we would also rejoice and sing loudly and look forward to the day where you come and that all evil and sin and death would be destroyed and that we would all be made new, worshiping you perfectly in spirit and in truth with full communion restored. And Lord, as we go this week, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for communion next Sunday, that you would start to prepare our hearts now and seeing how beautiful the words take and eat are in you because of your life, death, and resurrection. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.